now streaming on Paramount Plus. Gather your besties. We are very exclusive. And get ready. Mom, go make snacks. For sure, Regina. Yeah. For the movie that hits like a bus in a good way. No one died. Mean Girls. Made at PG 13. Now streaming on Paramount Plus. Welcome in to the Ops and Audibles podcast mailbag edition. A little late. We warned you. It's out now, though. I'm at Prem, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on the show. Um, we've got a lot to dive into. Looking at the questions, it's kind of all over the place. And that's what this season of the, this time of the year is. We've got basketball tournament discussion. Uh, we've got some NFL discussion. Um, and we're also going to dive into some football. And there's a lot to get to. So let's just go right into it. I don't know the order. Uh, but Eric, you are the person in charge of that, so go ahead. Matt, the order's right here. We've got it onto the side. You know the order. Don't I'm just go. trying to pretend. Just okay, kidding. okay, never mind. Matt doesn't know the order. He <laughs> he can't see it, uh, apparently. Uh, first question here. And we're going to go to Jared because he's been handling our NFL Combine coverage. By the way, NFL Combine wraps up this today, we should say, uh, Monday, March 6th. So um, I don't even know, Matt or Jared. Uh, before I get to the question, is anyone still yet to perform from an Oregon perspective, or have all of their athletes are have all of the athletes already gone? Combine wrapped up yesterday. Why did it say March sixth when I googled it a moment ago? I'm not sure. Maybe there's still interviews to do for teams and players, but it does say uh, March all the, 6th on the old uh, Googles. But I will trust all the workouts expertise. are are done today. So workouts are done or done yesterday? Excuse me. So uh, we can, this question is even maybe more finality in terms of answering it from at Nash underscore Duckanier. Which former Oregon players from the NFL Combine do you see getting drafted, and where? And then a second co- component: Do you think Christian Gonzalez is now a lock to go top ten? Gonzalez, of course, had a very strong Combine showing in individual drills. Ran four three eight, I think, in the forty. Uh, vertical over 40 inches, kind of everything you wanted from him while being measured mm-hmm. in about 6'2", 200 pounds. So um, maybe let's start with that part, Jared, and then get to the second. Um, sure. You know, I think the thing that's kind of cool with Oregon here, obviously you'd like to see more depth in these drafts, but this could be four straight years with a top 10 pick. Um, yeah. Not a lot of schools can say that. Of course, some schools can say that if they get four guys every top 10, it seems like, but from an Oregon perspective, what do you think, Jared? I think the odds seem pretty good right now that Gonzalez has taken top 10 kind of with the buzz of the combine wearing off here. Yeah, certainly. I think Gonzalez was probably a lock to go top 10 before the combine. Um, he was the one or two cornerback in everybody's mock draft. You just have to ask, um, depending on who's making the mock draft. Uh, it's either him or Devon Witherspoon out of Illinois or Joey Porter Jr. out of Penn State. Um, but Gonzalez did really well at his combine. I think that's exactly what people expected. Um, you know, he was listed on Bruce Feldman's like top 60 or 80 freaks two years ago. Um, he still is a physical freak. He checked in at 6'1", 197 pounds. So just under what he was listed at, at Oregon, uh, decent arm length at 32 inches total. But like Eric said, a 4'3", 840, 1.54 second, 10 yard split, which is pretty important for his, um, for his position group, as, as a cornerback, you want a quick quick change ability, uh, which is pretty good at 1.45. And then uh, a good test in just his overall explosive athleticism was his broad jump at 11 feet, 1 inches, and then his uh, vertical jump at 41 and a half inches. So I, I think Gonzalez performed just as, as well as I think everybody expected him to. Um, I think a top 10 pick could certainly be on the horizon for him as long as he interviews well. 
Um, there's no reason to think that he wouldn't. He's been a good football mind the entire time at Oregon. Um, you know, every time we interview him, although he's not not much of a talker, he does have a very good understanding of what's going on in the football field and can diagnose plays really well. In terms of everybody else, yeah, other than Noah Sewell, I don't know if someone's going to get drafted. Probably. But it's not going to be until day three. And Sewell is probably going to be a day two guy just because of his defensive upside and his athleticism and his height and weight. But I could see him slip into day three as well just because he he performed fine, but he didn't perform great. Um, he and DJ Johnson performed on the very first night as a part of the of the linebacker group. Obviously, Noah at inside and DJ Johnson at outside linebacker. I thought DJ had a better combine than Noah Sewell did. Um, obviously, DJ Johnson is you know, at a disadvantage being his age. I think he's 23 or 24. Sewell is obviously a younger guy. He's coming out after his junior year. But, you know, Sewell, 4'6", 440, uh, 1.57, 10-yard split, which is pretty good. But 9'7", broad jump, a 33-inch vertical jump. Not necessarily explosive athlete numbers, which I think was one of his biggest knocks coming out of college. Even coming into college was can he maintain his explosive athleticism at, at his size and his weight? Um, he did cut. He was 246 pounds at the combine, which is down from his 153 pounds on the Oregon roster. Um, and then DJ Johnson had a great combine, 449, 40-yard dash for a guy who's 6'4", 260 pounds. But you know, because of his age, I'm sure somebody will pick him up probably as an undrafted free agent. Um, but I'm not sure that he'll be picked at all. Uh, I'm sure one of the offensive linemen will be picked between Forsyth, Malasala, Amoave, Lalu, and TJ Bass. But, you know, I'm I'm not 100% sure that any of them are going to be picked. I think that they're late-round draft picks. I think someone like Adrian Clem might take take a guy in the sixth or seventh round. But there's no guarantee. I mean, they're not on any mock drafts. I, they're they're going to be similar to what the offensive line class was after 2019 with Jake Hansen, Shane Lemieux, um, and Calvin Throckmorton, where those guys do get picked up eventually, and sure, they start playing in the NFL, but it won't be – an immediate impact like somebody like a Christian Gonzalez was or a Panesuel was. Um, three, the last three drafts, two corners in each draft have gone, have seen a uh, cornerback, have seen two cornerbacks go in the top 10. Um, so six cornerbacks have been drafted in the top 10 over the last three years. So basically you're asking yourself, is Christian Gonzalez a top two corner? Um, it's not that simple, but kind of is. I think he probably is in that discussion. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he goes in the top 10, but I also wouldn't be surprised if he slides to 13 or 14. Like what happens if some teams make some trades and realize we can get Gonzo at, at 16 and get they, a third round draft pick or something. Right. Gonzo is going to be gone by then. That's the thing. Well, I mean, my, my point is like crazy stuff happens and he may slip to 11. What's the difference between 10 and 11? Like, I think he's going to go top 10. I would think he is, but I wouldn't be surprised if he slips two or three spots just because some team says, hey, you know, these three teams don't need a cornerback. We can, instead of drafting Gonzo at seven, we can get him at 11 or 12. Are, are we surprised by Sewell's marks? By the way, I find I find them to be kind of all what I expected, 
And I, I bring that up because I've seen people suggest that it was a huge disappointment that he didn't run like four five. But did we think he was going to run four five? He ran four six four, which is fine, which is okay for an inside linebacker. I think I saw again it's on Twitter, so I haven't verified it, and maybe I should before even saying it. But that 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 four six four is in like the seventieth percentile of current NFL starting inside linebackers, and I don't even know if we think he's a starting inside linebacker, but. So basically what you're saying is like, even though that's not a great time, that's that's a time that the majority of NFL players can at least run, right? That position group. Um, so I don't know. I, 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 I continue to think like he didn't have a great final season, but I feel like we're, we're seeing people go from, we expected a couple of years ago coming off of 2020, off of 2021, that he'd be a first round talent. So now the fact that he's clearly not a first round talent, that he's going to be like undrafted, which doesn't feel like jives with what I've seen or what I've read. So like Jared, like, did you think four six four? Like, and I also think we we also get into this thing where we come off the combine and, and a guy runs one time and it's slower than we think, and that we we are emotionally invested because we thought he'd run a certain time. Like, and do you think what he did like cost him a ton of draft equity, or is this sort of like I just never saw him as somebody who I thought would do particularly well a, a thing like this, like a combine, like athletically, he's never going to stack up with guys who are running you know sub four five at two hundred and thirty five pounds when he's closer to two fifty. Yeah, I mean, his draft combine did not cost him draft stock. His season this past year cost him draft stock. That was the problem. Right. It was a it was a very underwhelming season for Noah. And he said at the combine to James Crepier, the Oregonian, who was there covering it, that you know at one point he was injured, and that makes a lot of sense as to why he you know struggled to play with the same tenacity and same statistical evaluation that he has at years past at Oregon. That's what knocked him down. Because he came into the year back in September and August in mock drafts before the season, which are always fun to look at if anybody has just some spare time to go look at mock drafts before college football seasons even start. But he was a projected first-round pick, and I'm saying like top 28. Like he was not just you know at the very tail end of a mock. He was he was in there. He was, and this is from the ESPN. This is from CBS. These are from reputable mock draft analysts and guys who have industry connections. Um, there were, you know, there were a few things to not like about Sewell after his, you know, freshman and sophomore year. He was a good player. He had good size, uh, traditional old school middle linebacker, 6'2, 250 pounds, moved well, tackled well. His play this past year really, you know, took a hit to his draft stock. And, you know, there's he, he's going to be drafted. Just depends where. I think like second, third round is probably a more realistic route um, like Gonzalez. He's not much of a talker when it comes to media, but he's very understanding of football. He has a great football IQ. Um, but, and so teams are really going to appreciate that, but uh, he's just, he's not that first round talent that I think a lot of people expected him to be. That's why he was rated a five-star coming out of high school, because that's what evaluators are looking at in terms of what a star prospect is. Um and with his performance at the combine, I mean, it was probably a little underwhelming. You would have liked to have seen him reach into five or four fives for a forty time, um, but I mean, it, that's just how it's going to be. It's just the forty times nowadays are absolutely absurd. And when you aren't running a good forty time, it's looked at as a disaster. And I don't think Sewell's combine performance was a disaster. It was probably about what you'd expect. You would have liked a little bit better in the forty, but. That's what you would expect for a guy who's 6'2", 246 pounds, running a 40-yard dash. And, and he ran 4.75 in high school, by the way. So, like, 
I mean, that, yeah. I just you just knew he was never like a four 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 five guy. So when he ran four six four, I just saw a lot of right. Oregon fans reacting like the world was coming to an end when he ran four six four. I'm kind of like, well, like sure, as Jared said, like he's a big kid. Run, you'd love to see him run four five five, but I just don't think anybody who watched him for three years thought he would. So the expect like the fact that people get super disappointed by that outcome and think he cost himself money, I agree with Jared. I think he cost himself money in in the months of September through December, not not through the months of of uh, yeah. I guess no, since then. Um, to your point about looking at old mock drafts, my favorite one is the Tyler, Tyler Shuck being the number one overall draft pick that yeah. was circulating in, for like two in cycles. this draft, in this, in this upcoming draft. draft. Yeah. A couple of years yeah. ago, he had, he was the projected number one pick for a couple of years on, on one outlet, which I always found uh, comical. So, uh, do we have any more drafts or football? I don't think it would solid tested really well for a big guy. Um, he's probably the best offensive line prospect despite his age. And then shout out to DJ Johnson running a four four nine forty. Absolutely absurd. So he's not he's not in mocks. Like we don't think he's going anywhere. There are very few people who will do a six to seven round mock draft, and I respect that because it just sounds hellacious. Um, but I think Sala, you could see him in that five to seven round. He's big enough. He's talented enough. Um, he's still young enough, and he's proven enough where a team like. Like the Patriots with Adrian Clem, who literally has firsthand experience, might try to pick him up uh, just because he's 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 good. He's a plug-and-play guy. Like I said earlier, he's like the 2019 offensive line with Lemieux and Throckmorton and, and Jake Hansen. Like those guys are experienced. You can kind of plug them in and hopefully you know get a couple plays in if somebody has an injury type of deal. And I guess just reacting to that and then we'll move on to the second question here. Uh, that sort of surprises me a little bit considering – from an on-field production perspective at Oregon, the other two players who were at the Combine, Forsyth and Bath, were both multiple-time all-conference players, and I think Big Salu was an yeah. honorable mention. So from an on-field perspective, and I think even looking back at PFF grades, you would suggest, hey, these other two guys are better, but you think based on the Combine, he now has the best chance of being drafted? I think they all have a similar chance. I just think that Salah's measurements favor him a little bit more like bass's measurements he has to move to guard at the nfl must he has what he wanted to do from the beginning since he's been here at oregon right right yeah 100 percent. and he's going to have to do it in the nfl because um his measurements were not that of an offensive tackle while salas were Uh, alex forsyth actually measured very well he measured in at six foot four too so that's a big thing for him um I, i think yeah so I, honestly, just from what Sala did and his 40 time and his uh, three-cone drill and all that good stuff that I obsess over and nobody else does, I think Sala does have the the higher potential of being drafted earlier. Um, and then Forsyth is a center. You don't necessarily need to draft centers too often. Yeah, but if you're a good center, you separate yourself and you go – like typically in drafts – I'm not saying it's foresight, but typically in drafts there's like one or two centers that separate yeah. and are like second or third down picks and then no one gets taken to like the seventh. So right. um, I don't know if Alex is that guy and he probably isn't considering – I think he got hurt in the middle of the combine too, so he wasn't able to run. Which is, yeah, he didn't He didn't participate in any of the drills. Dis- disappointing. All right. Uh, all right, question two. I think this is a new question asker, so thank you for listening to the show and for submitting one from at duck2081, and then the lowercase letter A, which is interesting. I wonder what that means, 2081 letter A. Any chance the new OC will try to protect Bo Nix from injury? I believe Justin Herbert was limited from running in the 2019, in 2019 until the Rose Bowl. 
Uh, good memory on 2019, that's right. Uh, after Herbert got injured under Willie Taggart's watch in 2017, there was basically a two-year, we're not going to run Justin Herbert going on. Uh, and uh, and that carried throughout. To the question about Bo, um, I think it's an interesting question to pose, given the similarities where we've now had both of Oregon's, I would say, well, I'm not even going to say that. We've had two, these are the best two quarterbacks Oregon's had in a long time, right? Like, without question, the, the quarterbacks in between were not up to these players' caliber. Um, the quarterbacks preceding Herbert, I guess Vernon, you would say, from a stand, production standpoint, was on par, but from a talent perspective, I don't think anyone thinks he was as good. So, like, you're talking about the two best quarterbacks I think Oregon has had since Mariota. Um, and both of them had, you know, injuries that cost them, in Her Herbert's case, games, in uh, Nix's case, obviously, uh, being at 100% and being able to perform at the end of the season. So I see the similarities there. Um, I think there is a chance that they'll try to limit that. But I also say you look at the history of what, A, what Bo Nix has put on film, very capable as a runner. You saw Oregon's offense really take a step back um, following that. Obviously, the offense would take a much bigger step back if another quarterback were thrust into the game. So you understand why you'd want to be protective. But I also look at what Will Stein's history is and – Again, I'm not saying he can't be creative and they can't come up with a Bo will never carry the football um, strategy, but Will Stein, also a guy who likes to run as quarterback. At least that's what we see historically at UTSA. I know it's not a huge sample size, but um, there's certainly a desire to, to have mobile quarterbacks and Bo's really mobile. So I, I would imagine that they'll, of course, try to limit the t hits he takes, but I don't think you can remove that entire component because I just think that that really hurts this offense. And we saw firsthand the back half quarter of the season there where Bo didn't run the football in any organized situations really at all until a couple of late game scenarios where they wanted to trick a defense and you could tell that he wasn't healthy in doing that. I just thought that you saw the offense take a step back. So um, I'm, I'm sure they'll do everything they can to protect Bo. I don't think they're just going to completely eliminate quarterback runs from, from the discussion. Uh, this answer can be simply no, because Dan Lanning's been asked about it multiple times and he says we play to win the game. So they're going to, they're going to use what they like Bo's competitiveness and his toughness and they're going to use it. So I will, will Stein. I mean, I don't think will, will, cause like you said, he's ran his quarterbacks at his previous stop, but even if he wanted to, the man in charge of the entire program doesn't have that philosophy. So. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty simple. Um, I also don't think that there were a lot of design bonix runs last year. Not to say that they didn't do it because they did, but you mean the percentage of it? RP RPOs in general is just an opportunity for it to be designed run, though. Like that's part of it's right. built in. Yeah, but how often? I just didn't think he was taking it himself that often. Like I don't he, think that the the offense was designed a lot around bonix taking the ball and keeping it and running it himself. I know that he had the option to do so, but. Um, you know, it's kind of like the, the Anthony Brown idea of like, is this really an RPO? Is it really an option? Um, you don't, you don't I, think they're running a lot of RPOs last year? No, Eric, I do. I'm just saying like, I don't think that uh, of Bo Nix's runs last season, I don't think a lot of them were designed. I think a lot of them were scrambles and opportunities for him to run the ball down the field, which will 100% happen this next season. Um, whether or not Will Stein elects to have a lot more actual runs for Knicks. Um, we'll see. 
I mean, that's that's the whole thing about Will Stein is that you know there's a lot of question marks revolving around what he's going to do with the offense, and we're just going to find out eventually. Um, I think that Bonex will be a running part of this offense just because they absolutely need it. To Eric's point earlier, when he went down with an injury and couldn't run, the offense took a hit. And you look at how Oregon had Justin Herbert and not allowing him to run. Herbert's a better passer than Bo Nix is by a long shot. And again, no disrespect to Bo Nix, but Justin Herbert is just a better passer. And so that they were able to withstand his inability or the coach's decision to not allow him to run because he's just a better passer. But Oregon needs Bo Nix to be mobile, uh, to at least scramble, to maybe take an RPO once or twice a game. Um, just to show that he can do it like he did against Utah and tried to do against Washington. Um, so, I, I mean, I, it'll be interesting to see where they go with his offensive attack, but I, I don't. they're not going to limit him in running. Like Matt said, Dan's, Dan's not going to allow that to happen. I, I, I think you answered your question, though. Like, Or you answered the question. Um, Bo Nix, like, when he got hurt against Utah, the offense took a huge hit. I think right. the RPOs were there quite often. We just didn't see him handed off um, because he didn't need to because teams were, were so respectful of his of his outside game. And then how many times did we see Bo Nix do a QB sneak? Well, I know it's only one or two yards, but you're still asking your quarterback to basically go through the most violent part of the field in a, you know for one or two yards twenty times. I I think that's on the low end, and that's. A quarter of his of his carries so I, I absolutely think they call it designed runs it just happened to be that he made the right read most of the time he was fourth in the conference in rushing attempts for quarterbacks by the way yeah i i you know and i guess i'm, I'm trying to think of what i want to address first i i actually do think to the herbert part in 18 and 19 you know i, I think it's funny in retrospect people there's a lot of criticism about mario being unable to get the most out of herbert and i think some of that's legitimate but i actually think a part of why that 1918 offense wasn't particularly explosive like you go back and look at the numbers they had some good games but there were like herbert's career statistically isn't probably what a lot of people thought it could have been and i think a, a, a component of that was the inability to run the football for, from an rpo perspective like he just there was no threat to run at all um, up until the end of the season and then look at the success they had in the rose bowl when they did unleash that you know and obviously Nix is a better run. Like if you just want to break down the two's talents, yeah, Nix is a better runner than Herbert, and Herbert's a better passer than Nix. No one's arguing that. But I think what held back that 2019 offense at times, and of course, you don't want to say that they had like a disappointing season because they won a Rose Bowl, they won the conference. Um, a lot of high, a lot of high water marks were hit, but I they they didn't run the quarterback really at all until the very end of the season. And when they did, they had a lot of success doing so. And so, like you could almost make that a a, a cautionary tale of why, if you're Dan Lanning, you want to be very careful with with how you approach this. And and Dan, as Matt said, has already come out and said, like, I've asked the question a couple of times about running quarterbacks. I think I asked it early on in the season because Nick's wasn't sliding. And, and, you know, Dan was saying, I'm in support of it until it's not a productive part of the offense. And he says, I might look silly later for saying this if he gets hurt, but we want to run the quarterback because we want to be competitive. And that's how Nets Nick's mindset so to, i know we've, we've kind of talked away around this whole thing i think we're all in agreement of like yeah i don't anticipate this offense being um limiting in terms of what nicks is, is asked to do because i know he's competitive i know the coaching staff is competitive and they want to do what they can to win football games um but it will be interesting to see how and what ways maybe they are 
they add extra precautions to protect Bo, or if that's something that is a, an offseason talking point, or if they go, hey, that was part of the game of football, and it was a game on the line. We we called the we called the play. He made a made a move and and took a hit, and that's just part of the game. Mm-hmm. You aren't going to take that away because if you do, um, you remove a huge component of the offense. So I, I think that part will be 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 interesting to track, but I don't anticipate much changes. Frank Harris had 129 carries in 2022 as a quarterback for UTSA. That would have been first in the conference in the Pac-12. Mm-hmm. We don't know, like Jared said, we don't know how many of those are designed runs or him scrambling, but he had 129 attempts. He didn't have 100, and he definitely didn't have 129 scrambles, I'll tell you that. Yeah, definitely not. No. All right, let's take a quick break. Uh, we'll wrap up the second half of the show on the mailbag after that. Greetings, Fantasy Warriors. I'm Heath Cummings, your guide to fantasy dominance on FFT Dynasty. Join me this offseason where mock drafts become epic showdowns and every pick shapes your legacy. If, if I was Adam, with the team that he's built, Will Levis makes so much more sense. And that's not all. We're peeling back the curtain on the future with our exclusive 2024 NFL Draft Prospect Profiles. Uncover hidden gems that'll elevate your roster to legendary status. Puka Nakua. After Cooper Cup, we really have no idea who's going to get the targets. Keaton Mitchell of East Carolina. Explosive speed is ridiculous. This isn't just a podcast. It's a playbook for champions. Subscribe to FFT Dynasty now, and together, we'll conquer the fantasy football frontier. Your dynasty journey starts here. Grab your VIP pass. We're delving into the secretive world of Formula Formula One. Behind the scenes with two of the sport's biggest names, Mercedes and Williams. This is not coal mining, this is Formula One motor racing. As they build their new cars. We want to be so much further ahead. We are in permanent racing mode. And face shocking headlines. Here's Lewis Hamilton moving away from Mercedes. I'm Joseph Fiennes and this is F1, back at base. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Austin Audible's podcast. Uh, two questions in, a couple more to go. All right. Third question. I think this is another first-time question asker, so thanks for asking. I believe the it's at Keller, but they use the numeral three in place of the E, so it's K3LL3R. Who, in your opinion, will win freshman of the year on offense and on defense in football for Oregon? Hashtag Austin Audible. So we're not talking Pac-12 freshman of the year, clearly here. Um, we're talking limited to just Oregon football players in 2023. Who's the top offensive freshman? Who's the top defensive freshman? Um, if we are using 2022 um, as any sort of context of what a freshman usage will look like, it doesn't seem like we're expecting any of these freshmen to have breakout seasons necessarily because what we saw, I think we talked about this before, small sample size. One thing that'll be interesting in 2023 is how does Dan Landing choose to utilize this true freshman because again in 2022 i've been doing the redshirt review series up on 24 7 recently and like almost everybody from that class redshirted so it's a lot of reviews to go through because dan didn't really utilize his freshman the way maybe mario had and obviously so much of this is situational but there just wasn't a ton of usage so i'll be curious in 2023 with again a lot of highly rated players how many of them see the field what roles they see them in um do you want to do offense first defense second and just kind of go through that work? Sure. Okay. Sure. Yeah, why not? Um, I'm going to go Kenyon Sadiq just because I think that's the clearest route to immediate playing time, given that there are three 
And I, again, as Matt brought up on our last podcast, you've now gone 26 minutes without Jared begging the coaching staff for adding a tight end. Um, you will probably do so in a moment here. But the fact that Kenyon Sadiq steps onto the field here, uh, or the practice turfs, we should say, as a true freshman, um, and is like the de facto number three tight end, not that that's a problem at all necessarily. It's not ideal. But what it certainly does is provide him the the, the pathway to, to a lot of playing time and potentially being the biggest difference maker in year one as a true freshman on offense. So that's the pick I would make. There are a couple of, well, there are several other guys you could choose, I think. But um, to me, he makes the most sense, not because I think he's the most talented player. By golly, do I think he's one of them, but because he's got the the, the best kind of route to the field. Yeah, I think there's only two two options for this. I think it's either Kenyon Sadiq or Jurion Dickey. Um, I think Dante Dowdell is another guy that you could list, but he's behind Bucky Irving, Noel Whittington, and Jordan James from last season. Um, I'll just be different, and I'll pick Jurion Dickey as the guy. I will say Kenyon Sadiq's a very good pick because of the lack of tight end depth, so Dan, get on that. Um, you've got an injury-prone uh, tight end in front of him, Patrick Herbert, and then that's it. And then you have Terrence Ferguson. So very clear route there for Kenyon Sadiq to get into playing time. Uh, I'm going with Jurion Dickey because – uh, other than Treshawn Holden, we are not aware of who the other Z receivers are on the roster, and we'll find out here in a couple of weeks as spring ball begins. Uh, Dickey, five-star wide receiver recruit, uh, really talented, good frame already. Um, it just depends, you know, what time he enrolls into camp, if he's a guy who enrolls during the summer, if he's a guy who enrolls during the spring term, um, I guess summer slash fall. Uh, and then gets the understanding of the playbook and then comes in and competes on a on a day-to-day basis and then wins some type of backup job. Um, it could be very similar to what we saw with Troy Franklin and his freshman season where slated as a starter to begin the season gets hurt. Um, Dickey could work himself into some competition with Treshawn Holden just depending on how they go at it. But uh, I think that he's got a great chance to get in, onto the field as an offense offensive freshman. Um, I do like Eric's pick and Dickie more though, or sorry, and Sadiq more though. Yeah, I would have picked Sadiq, uh, Kenyon Sadiq as well. Um, and so if I'm going to go like a wild card option, I'd go Ashton Cozart. Um, mm-hmm. he has elite speed. He has really good size. Uh, he's almost six foot four. Um, and with some position openings, you know, because of transfers or because of guys graduating, I, you know, does he play a ton? I don't know, but you can't teach size and you can't teach elite track speed. And those are things that he has, which will give him an opportunity to earn playing time during fall camp. Um, so I, I think if I had to pick someone in, it would be Sadiq as my first choice, but the wild card I would say would just be Cozart. I'd pick Dickie over Cozart, but Jared, I picked him too. So I'm just throwing out Cozart as kind of like that sleeper wildcard guy. Because I don't want an order where I get a pick first again. Why don't Matt, why don't you go first on defense, then Jared, then myself, so I can give the wild card? Why don't we do it that way? Sure. Um, I I was I guess I'll go just the obvious one with Mateo. Um yeah. I didn't want to pick him, but it feels like the most obvious. Um, because Oregon has a need of rush edges. Um, DJ Johnson gone. What you know? What does what does the edge look like for Oregon next season? Um, does Mateo work himself onto the defensive line? I don't know. He's got the size for it. Um, does he start there? Um, but I, I just think he's the most obvious guy to have a chance at playing right away for Oregon. 
on the defense just because of his size, his speed, his athleticism. Um, you know, Chris Singletary, you know, one of our analysts for scouting department views him as a, a potential future first round draft pick. And, you know, those types of players, they find ways onto the field pretty quickly. There's a lot more options, I think, in this side of the ball. Yes. Um, but everywhere, I, I don't know, Oregon's defense at least has a lot of experience at every single position that comes into, um, I guess, except maybe a linebacker. Yeah. But Oregon yeah. didn't really take any linebackers this class. Um, so I'll go with Old Faithful. I'm going with Blake Purchase, another edge rusher. Um, I think he's going to be in steep competition with Mateo Youngalale as the guy who comes in as a true freshman and disrupts the pass rusher. Um, I don't think either of them are going to be physically ready to, to take on a full-time role as a as a backup in every single game. Maybe Mateo, if, if, since he's enrolled early and puts on a couple, a couple more pounds of weight. Um, but both of them are extremely talented. Uh, Purchase has an unbelievable gap in terms of his uh, 24, top 247 ranking and his composite ranking. I think the top 247 has him as a top 150 player in the country and the top, and the composite has him as like a top 300, top 400 player in the country. Um, but the talent is there. He put up crazy stats. Uh, I think he went to Cherry Creek High School in Colorado. Uh, crazy stats there in high school. Um, he's a guy who's a, who's a good bit smaller than Mateo is, someone who I kind of think would be um, strictly in the game on pass rushing scenarios. So think of like a third down and long just trying to get somebody who's quicker and more uh, uh, just faster off the line of scrimmage, quicker to the ball, quicker to the quarterback, pair him up with Jordan Birch on the other side. I think that's a good idea. Um, as I'm sure Eric might go into, there's a lot of good defensive line picks here that you could, that you could uh, probably see making an impact, but I'm going to go with purchase. I'm just going to stick with old faithful there. Someone who I'm, who I've been high on for months now. Composite purchases 282nd. 24-7 sports, 129th. So, as you said, big a gap. big gap. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of options here if we're not using, as we established earlier, the – I mean, I think Mateo is the logical choice. Um, you can also look in the secondary and find some names that, that would make some sense, at least more highly rated players. I don't know mm -hmm. if I see Roger That was Pleasant what I or, or, struggled with. Yeah, I don't know if I see Pleasant or, or Austin necessarily having a direct path to major playing time just because I look at the corner yeah. room and I think there's a lot of experienced guys back. Uh, Jerry Mixon is a name to maybe know at inside linebacker just because he is the only signee there and Oregon is rather thin at inside linebacker, but again, a lot of veterans. So if I'm picking a – do I just pick the guy who I picked in our, 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 our mock draft that we did um, a couple of weeks ago, Jared? I guess I probably sure. do. Um which is, I guess, I guess is probably where it should land, uh, given the way this all played out. So I'll, I'll pick Johnny Bowens, who was my mm -hmm. selection as well when we did that um, exercise with, with Zach Neal a couple weeks ago. Um, I don't know if I necessarily think he's going to be the freshman of the year on defense, because I, as I said, I think Matt made the right choice there. I probably even like Jared's guy maybe a little better, but I, you got there's going to be some guy up front from the defensive line in this class that 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 makes an impact. There there are so many, you know additions that have been made to this cycle there are quite a few highly regarded returners for oregon too and they did add a little bit there i don't know we kind of can argue over where birch fits exactly but um so i don't know if it's like a he doesn't have a direct path but as jared kind of alluded to and, and kind of my logic behind why he could be the pick if it's not mateo is just hey this is a kid who comes in he's going to be here from January on, I think he's already probably over 265, which is what he's listed at based upon photos of uh, that I've seen. He looks 
massive. Um, and so, like, yeah, there's going to be one of these guys who makes an impact, and I'll, I'll go with Bowens. All right, on to the final question here, and it's from at the llama, who does use oh at the one llama. Uh, sorry, there was a, a, a numeral in between the L's there. Um, this is going to be a basketball question, and we're going to touch on both programs. It's March Madness time, so any slash all of these. One, what does men's basketball need to do to get in, and what needs to happen for women's basketball to get in? Plus, what are the percentage you think this can happen for either? And then two, if one slash both get in, what are their what are their seeds, and who could go further? Hashtag it's notable. So kind of a lot to digest there. Um, Let's go to the men because I think there is more to answer than there is on the women's side here because they have games to play, um, including what will be a conference tournament game on Thursday. The Ducks beat Stanford. They beat Cal since last time we recorded a podcast to earn the four seed. That means they get a bye week down in Vegas. Matt will be there to cover it. Uh, and you've kind of broken this down on the website, but for those who maybe haven't seen your work, um, lay it out for us. What do the Ducks need to do to get in? Uh, getting that four seed gives them the bye, as you said. That's the big big deal. It's a lot easier to win the tournament uh, playing three games and three nights instead of four games and four nights, although Oregon's done both. Um, they have First of all, they have to beat Washington State or Cal. It would be another shock if California pulls off the, the upset, um, considering they are one of the worst teams in college basketball. But, you know, it's March Madness, who knows? But Washington State's going to probably win that one. And so they have to beat Washington State, essentially. Um, to get to the second round or the, the quarterfinal round. And Washington State is hot. They have won six straight games coming into the Pac-12 tournament. One of those is against Oregon. They won by three points uh, in the Palouse. Um, that's a game Oregon really felt like they gave away. Uh, Oregon kind of handled Washington State uh, the first time that they played back in December. The Cougars were without a couple guys. Um, Washington State is a good three-point shooting team. They've, Muhammad Gay is a terrific big man. It's Honestly, it was the matchup I did not want to see. I would have rather have seen Oregon play ASU because ASU is very crazy with the basketball, and you can see them shoot their way in and then shoot them their way out of winning games. Washington State's well-coached. Uh, they've got shooters. They've got an elite big man. Um, it will be a very difficult game. If they get past that one, then they are, I think, squarely on the bubble, and they've got to basically beat UCLA. Beat UCLA, you're probably in. Um, and at that point, you're now you're in the championship game. Just go win the third game, which would more than likely be against Arizona or USC, um, and that would punch your ticket. But Beating UCLA and beating Washington State is probably how you, you get yourself into the tournament. Two wins makes it more than likely that you're in. One win is going to be dicey. You might get that play-in game. You might get left off, probably left off. Um, they're inside the top 50 for the net rankings, which is good. Um, they have lost a couple of their quad one wins that have turned into quad twos because those teams have lost. So that's hurt their resume a little bit. So beating UCLA is huge. Uh, what do, do you want me to answer? What type of seed line did did get? Is that well, the let, let's, part of the question? Let's get to let's get to that part later after we do the okay. um, 
And, well, they, I guess it's just maybe tied into the women's part. I was going to ask you what percentage you think it is that they get in. Because I think I think what you're laying out is exactly what I, I see, obviously, which is that if they get to the conference championship game, I think they're probably in. If they don't, I think it's pretty unlikely. So what, what's I mean, the, I, what are the odds? Yeah. I, I would say, like, I mean, look, they they were in – they had the lead in the second half both times that they played UCLA. UCLA will be without Jalen Clark more than likely the – most likely the Pac-12's defensive player of the year. He hurt himself, was on crutches in a boot um, in their season finale against UCLA. His status for the tournament, I think he's like doubtful right now. So they're going to be limited. They already play a short bench. Um, I think UCLA is a game where can win, but they have to play at their best. This isn't going to be an opponent that yeah, you, know, you you can get away playing a, a B plus game and win. No, you you've got to play one of your best games of the year. So like, I would say like twenty five percent chance that you know Oregon beats UCLA. That they play four or five times, they win maybe one or two of them. Um, and that's the beauty of the tournament. That's the beauty of conference tournaments. Is yeah, you know, some teams they play a seven game series, they're gonna win. But this is a one off. And you just need to play really good once. And if Oregon can do that, they can beat anyone in this conference. Yeah, they've got to play really good twice. They got to play really well That's against true. Washington State, assumingly. But I'm with Matt. I would much rather have seen uh, Arizona State, despite the fact that they came into Matthew Knight and blew the doors off of Oregon. Um, Oregon had a really good game in Tempe. Uh, that's a team that relies very heavily on isolation basketball, uh, not a lot of ball movement, um, just individual talent, which sometimes can get by. And if they're making shots, they're one of the hardest teams in the Pac-12 to beat. Um, but the shots that they take are awfully difficult. And sometimes when they make those shots, you just got to tip your cap and say, good shot for you. But um, that's a much better team for Oregon to face. I, I will say, though, when Oregon defeated Washington State at home, um, you know, they, they went to Nafale Dante inside a lot and against Muhammad Gay, who I really like, I think he's going to be, um, somebody who, if he stays another year, could be a, a dark horse Pac-12 player of the year next year, but, um, we'll see if he stays another year. Anyways, uh, Oregon has a tendency to kind of get away from that for whatever reason. When Nafale Dante is dominating, they will not give him the ball anymore after he messes up once or twice. Let's say he makes a turnover at a low post, which he's susceptible to doing. They won't go back to him, and this is a game, if they do play Washington State, which I think we all think they will, if they play Washington State, they need to go into Nafale Dante in the low block and just force them to double or triple team him, and he is more than fine with basketball IQ of making the right pass, getting the ball out of the low block, finding a shooter, finding somebody who can make the extra pass to a shooter, and hopefully they make some shots because that's what they're going to need to do, need to do against Washington State, and if they win that game – Absolutely need to do it against UCLA. That UCLA-Arizona game was very fun to watch the other night. Um, that's a very good program in UCLA and Arizona. But UCLA is going to be a tough one. They're without Jalen Clark. But, you know, Jaime Hawkins is still there. He's still capable of putting up a lot of points, as we saw in Eugene a couple weeks ago. Um, that's a good program. And like Matt said, two wins and it's an auto win, I think. You know, you might as well just go win the tournament at that point. Um it's still going to be difficult for them to get one. I think Washington State's going to play hard. And then after that, you, like Matt said, you have to play you know, as good a game as possible against UCLA. That Washington State loss, um, Oregon shot a better percentage from the field. They had nine more rebounds 
than Washington State did. It was really bad turnovers in the first half and some really untimely offensive rebounds for Washington State in the second half that did them in. You know, Oregon had that game. They mm-hmm. they should have won. You know, Dana Altman said like they were only up three at the half, and it should have been seven or eight, maybe even ten, because of just atrocious turnovers they had in the first half. Um, and Muhammad Gay had 18 points and 12 rebounds. He he was really, really good in that one. And to Jared's point, the first time around, he's right. Biddle was dominant in that performance uh against Washington State. He he had, I think, what was it? Uh, 22 and seven. He did have some turnovers as he struggled with the double teams, um, but they went to him often, and he was really, really – he's their best player this year. And Dana has said it. When he touches the ball, he doesn't have to score. When he touches the ball on the low block, good things tend to happen for the Ducks. To the women's side, they have played their final regular season game. Their resume is locked in. Um, it's a very bizarre resume. They are 17 and 14 with the number 19 net ranking. I don't think since the net ranking has come out, which again is not that many years, so it's not a huge sample size. I don't think there's ever been a team quite like this that has basically a 500 record, but is top 20 net. Like you look at some of the teams, Oregon is ahead of in the net and you're like, these are teams that are going to host in the NCAA Mm -hmm. tournament. These are teams that are two or three seeds in the NCAA tournament and Oregon is ahead of them in the net. Um, I think to the percentage point first, I think it's like a, a complete coin flip. I think it is 50-50 right now. And the reason I say that is I think Oregon is as on the bubble as any team could be on the bubble. They were inside the field of 68, according to Charlie Cream, who is the John, uh, Joe Lenardi equivalent on the women's side. They were the last team in the tournament going into Saturday's games. And then uh, West Virginia upset Baylor on the road in their Big 12 regular season finale game. And now – the Mountaineers jumped up a couple of spots and have Oregon as the first team out with the with the Mountaineers as the first team. I'm sorry, the last team in. So it really comes down to Oregon, West Virginia, it feels like right now, according to Charlie Cream's uh, projections. We don't know if these are entirely accurate or not. I will note that um, three of the next six teams after Oregon in the first four outfield, Oregon beat uh, multiple times this season. They beat Arkansas heads up. That's the team right behind them. They beat Washington two out of three times. That team has settled down there. And then they beat Michigan State at the PK-80 or mm-hmm. whatever it was, PK-85 uh, event up in Portland earlier this or earlier this season. So those three teams, they kind of have the tiebreaker against. They don't kind of. They do have the tiebreaker against, of course, there are other things you look at. But I don't expect either of those teams to surpass them. And those teams have all played their final games. Um, what makes this sort of interesting is the Big 12 is, I think, the lone major conference that plays its conference tournament this upcoming week. So Oregon will have to sweat this one out. They want to be big Oklahoma state fans when they, uh, when the Cowboys play West Virginia in the four five game Friday um, in the big 12 tournament. So I think if West Virginia loses to Oklahoma state, that probably moves Oregon back in the field. If West Virginia continues to win, that probably hurts Oregon. But again, that's assuming that uh, Charlie cream is accurate here to begin with that Oregon is behind some of the teams that they think they're behind. I think they're a very strange team to look at. There's a lot of reasons to say they should not be in. Um, there are probably more reasons to say they should not be in, to be totally honest. But then you have some reasons that you go, hey, they play in, I think, quite clearly, one of the most tough conferences in the country, probably right up there at the top. I think you can argue in terms of depth perspective. Um, they lost 14 games, but 12 out of the 14 are the teams that are in the field, and 10 out of the 14 are the teams that are going to be top seven seeds. So, um, I mean, they, they've got 
I've got an interesting resume. So they are in, they are very mm -hmm. much in this thing. I think it's going to be a coin flip going up until uh, March 12th, which is this Sunday when they have a selection show in the evening. Um, and if I'm going to put a percent percentage point to it, I've already kind of done it. I think it's legitimately 50-50 right now for the women. It is such a strange resume. Never seen anything like it with a top 20 net team and a 17 and 14 record. Because more often than not, if you see someone with a 17 and 14 record, you're not putting them in the tournament. And despite the net ranking that Oregon possesses, I fear that it might just be as simple as that, where the, the, the powers that may be of deciding who gets to go into the NCAA tournament will look at Oregon and say, yeah, that's a good net team. They play one of the harder you know, conference schedules in the country. They had a really good out-of-conference out of schedule as well against some of the better teams in the country. They're 17 and 14. I don't know if we can have that in the tournament. And maybe that doesn't. Maybe that isn't the case. Maybe West Virginia loses and Oregon gets in because of it. It's well, just and, really and can hard. I, can I interject yeah. one thing that makes it really interesting in the case between these two schools is Oregon is 17 and 14 with a number 19 net, and West Virginia is 19 and 10. So just two more wins with a 61st net. So mm -hmm. you, I mean, you look at those and go, I, I don't know. It's really interesting to look at. Clearly, Oregon has a better complete resume and only two fewer losses. And 60, 61 to 19 is a huge margin there. So I'm going to be very curious to see. Sorry to cut you off. I just wanted to add that part because I meant to bring it up on the top. No. Like they, they, they have these two teams have very different kind of paths to getting here. And I'll be very curious to see what the committee thinks is, is the better resume. Yeah, I and I don't know where they're going to go with this. And that's the problem. And that's what I'm, I guess I'm trying to describe here is that the the answer is, is we're, we're only going to just figure it out on Sunday. And, you know, like there's a pretty good perception of how the men's tournament is going to shake out because there aren't teams like this with a, you know, a 17 and 14 record, but are top 20 in the net. This is just such a peculiar team that I have no idea how this is going to be figured out because on one hand, yeah, they, they're one of the better, you know, straight to schedule teams in the entire country. But on the other hand, they're 17 and 14, they're three games above 500. They do not look like a conference team or an NCAA tournament team. You know, they finished the regular season, losing i think it was seven of their final 10 games um maybe it was six of their final 10 because they won their last two it's not uh, they won the last three and they they lost they lost seven or a won their last well i was saying stanford so yeah yeah regular regular season um, sure. it's and that's tough i mean that's the time of the year that you absolutely do not want to go through that period of time i mean it's coupled with the seven game losing streak so and i know that that was against good competition it's just the eye test factor you know, it's going to be tough. Like, like you said, Eric, I think it's just going to be a 50-50 chance. Like, we're either going to see their name pop up on Sunday or not. The fact that they have, they, the women of Oregon, have zero net one wins, quad one wins, um, is Doesn't help. a damning stat. Like, they haven't beaten a single team that's viewed as, like, a legitimate, bona fide NCAA tournament team. And, that's, not, that's not true. Well, I mean, they beat Arizona. Who's I mean, they have Arizona at home. Yes, they. That's right. They are. That's a quad two game for them. The women are different rankings. I'm guessing because uh, I'm looking at their their nitty gritty report here. But yeah, good. Sorry. But the fact remains, like when when you play the elite teams and you don't have a single win, like by the, by that metric, that hurts. And I said this on Twitter with regards to the men, and it applies here for the women too. 
And unfortunately, it's just a negative aspect of it. At some point, I don't care who you play. You have to win. You have to win games, whether it's a tough schedule or an easy schedule. And I would much rather take a team that's 20 and 10, and maybe they do have mm-hmm. a really weak schedule, but they, they beat the team that they could play. And, you know, Oregon is three games over 500. They don't have any games to play, and they didn't beat anybody in the quad one rankings. And so I hope they get in, but I, I don't know if they should. I mean, it's going to be tough. Yeah, and, and and I think the other part that is weird and that the net takes it into consideration is just how close all of their losses are. I think all their losses, with the exception of Ohio State, is less than 10, which you get some sort of bump, apparently, in the, at least in the women, from what I understand, and the net for being close. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's going to be weird. They're a very strange team. And then let's get to the second part. Uh, if one slash both get in, what are their seeds and how far could they go? Or who could go farther? Um well, I mean, if the women get in there, I think if either get in, it's going to be the same thing. They're, they're in the first, they're in the final four in the field, so they're going to be a 12 seed playing in the first four games. I think that's the path for both. Matt, you can let me know if you disagree. I think if Oregon, on the men's side, if the men's side, I guess, could win the conference tournament or get to the conference, you think they can get? What's the ceiling, I guess, for the men on the on the on the seeding perspective? Um, I mean, if things go perfect and they beat. Washington State, UCLA, Arizona, they could probably move to like the 10 seed. Okay. Um, maybe the nine. I don't know. I'd probably unrealistic there. Um, they'd be, 21, I, they'd I be think, 21 and 13 with like the number of 38 net or something, 35 yeah. net probably, right? Yeah. You'd be that 10, nine range. Um, I, I think, I think if they, if they, beat Washington State and lose to UCLA close and still get into the tournament, yes, they're in Dayton. They're playing in the playing-in round. Uh, if they beat UCLA but lose the conference championship, I think they're probably as an 11 seed that's not in the playing game. Okay. Um, and then I have no idea who's going to go further because these teams are very similar to me having watched far too much of them where I think that the Oregon women having covered them can beat a lot of these teams can be very competitive with a lot of these teams. I spent a lot of time watching Pac-12 conference tournament this weekend, watching other conference tournaments this weekend. I didn't come away thinking like the other conferences were so much better. In fact, like aside from Iowa being really awesome and I loving watching Caitlin Clark, I really wasn't impressed with much I saw in the Big 10 tournament, South Carolina. Like there are teams in these other conferences that are really 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 good. I'm not saying Oregon would beat the conference champion in the Big 12 or or anything like that or the ACC. I'm not suggesting that, but I'm just saying you watch these conference tournaments and you see a lot of teams that look very much beatable for a team like Oregon that has the upside that we think they have. At the same time, the team also lost seven straight games. They can lose to just about anybody. And a lot of the teams they lost to are teams that kind of fit into the same resume. So, you know, I mean, sure, could they win a game? Yeah, I think they could absolutely win a game, especially if they're in that first four, uh, or yeah, first four games that would be played mm-hmm. uh, shortly after the selection show. I think those are played on that Wednesday. Absolutely, they could win the game there. And who knows? They could go find a five seed that they match up really well with and, and win that game. I mean, I don't know. Um, but they could have just as easily, if they do make it, and lose their first game to whatever 12 seed they play, and, and that be it. So, I mean, like, I, yeah, I, I think <laughs> I don't know how much expectation. Yeah. I, I think they're the men's like the men's floor and ceiling is about as wide as it's ever been um, for a Dana Altman potential tournament team. Like, 
They hung with Houston, who's like one of the best teams in the country for like 30 minutes. Um, they almost knocked off Michigan State, who's a tournament team with like six scholarship players. Um, they've beaten Arizona. Uh, they've hung with UCLA both times. And then they've also lost by 27 points at home to Arizona State. They've also lost at home uh, by, I think, 13 points to UC Irvine. They've lost at home to Utah Valley by five. Like Utah Valley is going to win their league, but like that's an embarrassing loss. Like they could, they could get a, a 12 seed or an 11 seed and lose by 20, or they could be in the sweet 16. Like, I don't think that sweet 16 happens, but like they've shown that they can beat the better teams in college basketball. And this is a year in which there's, no real insanely deep field of, of tournament teams. You know, parity is very strong and on the men's side this season. So like the, I, I think the, the, the floor and the ceiling for this team is, is probably as wide as it's ever been. And, and you just literally don't know what you're going to get. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I could tell you what team will go farther. I've got, I've got no genuine clue because both teams like you guys have outlined yeah, they have the ceiling to do X. They also have the floor to do Y. And could I see either things happening? Yeah. Could I see both teams not making the tournament and we find out whenever Oregon plays presumably Washington State? Yes. Could I presumably see both teams making the te- making the tournament and winning their first game? Yeah, I could see that too. I just genuinely don't know what's going to happen because it's been such an up-and-down season for both programs. Eric, we talked about it with the seven-game losing streak. Matt just went through it on who they've been close with and won against – uh, over the year and against good basketball programs. I got nothing. I, I just think this is such a strange season for both teams and especially for college basketball in general, like Matt kind of went through for the men's side. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't have a percentage. I don't have a, a, a real thought process of what team could go further because uh, I think it could be either one of them. <laughs> it's just such a strange season for both teams. And, um, after covering it for, for both sides, it's, I don't have an actual answer for this, which is kind of surprising because usually I'll just talk out of my butt for, for having an answer, but I don't have one this time around. Well, we'll see. We'll find out. We'll, we'll know the answers to the field here in about six to seven days. Six days. Uh, it's Monday. Uh, we'll have a lot to figure out we'll have a lot to watch play out and we'll cover it all on duckterritory.com but that's going to do it for us today on the Austin audibles podcast thank you for listening thank you for submitting your questions we'll be back later for more podcasts this week talk later folks peace this is tony kornheiser show i'm tony we expected someone else so what exactly is the show about? Hmm, I don't know. It's a sports show nominally. Football's over, but we're finally at a point where things matter in college basketball and baseball season is on deck. Greatest three words in the English language, pitchers and catchers. We have some of the best voices come on and explain what matters or what makes an upset, like Ryan does, <laughs> nine over eight. No, that's not an upset. No, yeah, it is, Bob. And if you're lucky, I might just tell you about my search for discounted sleep pants or my worries about what my dog just ate. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. New CBS Monday. NCIS is back. We need all hands on deck. So grab your gear. NCIS! And join our elite team. What are the charges? Going 
murder. New cases to be solved. Double tap to the chest. Same caliber as the murder weapon. And new criminals to catch. That's the bomb maker. Where's the bomb? A new NCIS, Monday, 9, 8 central, on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus.